Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. As we begin to get into it, just to share a little bit of context, welcome for any new folks. My name is Angelina Thupadia. I'm trained as a political scientist, a professor, a philosopher, and I'm really looking forward to talking about hyper-individualism today, a weed to be pulled. And so just to give a little bit of, right, a framing remark at the outset, I'm not going to be talking about, right, in a sort of esoteric sense, like what is self, right? Is ego ever positive, right? But more broadly, some of the reflections that I want to share related to hyper-individualism today and some of the curiosities that I'd like to get into with y'all are a little bit more around, right, what hyper-individualism does to our perception. So much to get into related to this enormous topic. So again, just to give you all a little bit of a heads up, that, right, to kind of reduce what could otherwise be an epic amount of material, right, that we could potentially be getting into today, is something that I would like to really invite our attention towards. And so, so much for us to get into here. Just to start it off, I would want to share that unlearning this illusion of hyper-individualism is easier said than done, especially for those of us in deeply capitalist contexts. For example, like the settler colonial U.S. in particular, because, right, atomization, that divide and conquer down into the smallest unit possible, is as American as apple pie. Hyper-individualism is, in part, a result of having been divided and conquered. As a matter of fact, that mentality dovetails nicely with a common military strategy. It separates communities 
and individuals who could be coming together to end depression and then move the fuck on with this miracle that is life. But instead, this mentality of hyper-individualism encourages us to compete with one another, especially as opposed to, say, cooperating with each other or working together. And here's one part of this broader kind of divide and conquer, right, individuation scam that's even more insidious. It divisively classifies how we even understand oppression to begin with, especially, right, encouraging us to perceive in silos. But we've got to be able to connect the dots to begin to deepen our understanding, right, outside of that kind of super limiting divisiveness. Unless, of course, we're doomed to stay small and disparate. So to give a little bit of context, if you're looking at my screen now, I'll share the etymology with you of this word individual. <clears throat> Where does that divid come from? Smack dab in the middle of individual. Oh, look, from right the Latin word for to divide. So it's right there for us in the root of the term itself. And just as a little bit of a pro tip when it comes to deepening our understanding, etymology or the roots of words really merit our attention if you ask me. So just wanting to get the ball rolling by asking, what is it that we're actually even talking about to begin with? Where does this term come from, right? And what could that potentially reveal for us. So I want to share that, right, this concept of hyper-individualism is something that actually, say, in the settler colonial U.S. has gotten super amplified, especially in the past century. So there are, right, different antecedents that we could talk about historically for sure. But there's something that is especially relevant for us to consider, right, as it impacts our capacity to get free, our social movements. And just a little bit of a spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about a whole lot more of this actually on Saturday when we talk about, right, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists and the functions that those phrases perform. But, right, just as a little bit of a spoiler alert, right, or just as a little bit of a sneak preview, um, I really want to invite us to just temporarily take it back to the 1960s. So if you're looking at my screen, you can see this text, right, that's called Acid Dreams, the Complete Social History of LSD, the CIA, the 60s and beyond, right, that was co-authored by one of the founders of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Y'all might remember that organization as one that I gave a shout out to back during week one of this autumn series when we were talking about critical media literacy. So I'll share a little bit more about this on Saturday, but this is actually one of the first couple of research books I ever bought in my life when I was working on a paper about anti-war organizing during the right American war in Vietnam in an AP history class when I was in high school. And so I'm super grateful that the Borders bookstore down the street from my house had this book. Um, but I bring this up here because 
to keep it real, a lot went wrong in the 60s related to people's understanding of collectivity and individuation that still has lasting reverberations on us today. Um, and I'm gonna go so far as to say that acid actually in part played right one role in this right cultural story that we could consider right now. So what role might that have played, right? And how about we take it back and look to a cultural reference to begin to ground in, right, this shift from what otherwise was more of a focus in our social movements on collectivity to this navel gazing that actually became super pernicious towards the end of the 1960s, right? And then certainly into the early 1970s. And right, for folks who have not seen the four-part BBC documentary series, The Century of the Self, former right, uh, Liberation Spring students know I right, assign this for so many different classes because it is such a gem from the archives when it comes to showing all sorts of different historical examples of how this hyper-individualism got forced onto the mainstream society at the expense of revolutionary organizing. Um, and so I actually want to play a little bit of a song for you I'll bet some of y'all have already heard it, um, actually from 1968 to again situate ourselves within the broader sort of historical era that I'm drawing upon right now. And it's actually the Beatles song Revolution. So let's have a little bit of a listen and let's see what we can parse out here related to this theme of right either connecting with folks externally or potentially turning inward in a way that can be hyper-individualistic. So let's have a listen to the Beatles song, Revolution.
Thanks for having a listen, folks, and for the folks that have just come through since we were playing that audio clip, that was the Beatles' legendary song Revolution from 1968. Did you notice anything there related to the language of, right, selfhood or individualism? How about we pull out a particular excerpt, right? And let's just back up and acknowledge in 1968, what are the Beatles saying in a song that is titled Revolution? One of arguably for sure in the past century, the most revolutionary years on record in so many different material ways that we could reference all over the world, for sure in the US, for sure in Western Europe, right in the so-called global South too. What do they say? You say you'll change the Constitution. Well, you know, we all want to change your head. You tell me it's the institution. Well, you know, you exactly, right? Grace naming in the chat, you better free your mind instead, right? So this is if folks could just culturally take it back to this moment and understand how horrifically, right, dangerous this cultural turn has been for us. Imagine how much more effective we could be in our endeavors to get free in this moment. I'll say it again and how horrific is this? In 1968, what are these celebrity white boys sharing to their platform of literally billions of people throughout the entire planet in a song titled Revolution? Like this doesn't, I hope that we're getting paid to be counter-revolutionary and we can maybe say somewhat John Lennon aside because you know when people get assassinated there might be something to be said for them potentially doing interesting work. So not to generalize the Beatles, but let's be real. You say you'll change the Constitution. Well, you know, we all want to change your head. Exactly, Natasha saying in the chat, just get high, right? And again, what we could lay out here is also, you know, people misunderstanding what they have branded as Eastern mysticism, right? And LSD fronting as consciousness. But this is actually what is getting sold to people. You could not have concocted Spoiler alert, we're going there when we talk about conspiracy theories on Saturday, right? A more effective, right, CIA-funded, counter-revolutionary cultural milieu than what the Beatles are saying here. You tell me it's the institution. Well, you know, you'd better free your mind instead, right? I mean, just to situate this within the context to say even, right, in settler colonial politics, right, Amy Coney Barrett getting invited to the Supreme Court as a justice this week. Like, really, don't think about institutions. Just free your mind. Drop a little bit more acid and then everything will be fine, right? So I bring this in because... What we're talking about here is not just, right, some kind of abstract scholarly debate at all whatsoever. This mythology related to navel gazing being allegedly deeper than engagement with our movements to get free has been, right, infiltrating the collective consciousness in a massive way, especially since this counter-revolutionary move right at the end of the 1960s.
And again, if folks want to learn a little bit more about this history and you haven't checked it out already, please do check out that four-part BBC documentary that's called The Century of the Self that's been created by the former, right, is it Oxford, uh, political theorist Adam Curtis, who's got a lot of material with the BBC that might be almost a little quasi-libertarian, but the archival gems that he compiles for us to scope out completely merit our attention. We can bring our own right discernment and analysis to what he's putting on the table for us. Yeah, right, and Nikki sharing in the chat, the repetitive quote, everything's gonna be all right, end quote, is such a privileged bypassy refrain. You can say that again in Balsahin, so true, right? Like literally, and can we just remember for a moment, what was going on in 1968 globally and for these random white boy celebrities to be saying everything is gonna be fine, absolutely both a product of astonishing privilege and bypassing so i appreciate your bringing that out right and it really merits our pausing to see okay this is relatively obvious but how about we jump forward say half a century how about what this looks like today right are there instances that you can think of or that you can recall in this moment since 1968 so to see, is this just kind of anomalous? Like, were they just really off on this front, right? Or is there, right, a precedent that is being set here and that unfortunately hasn't gone anywhere since then because that has certainly been my observation, right? Again, Nikki sharing, y'all, bombs are falling, but it's fine, we're good, precisely, right? And so here's where I want to talk about solipsism, for a moment. So if any of y'all have ever taken, say, a philosophy 101 class, you might be familiar with this term. What on earth is solipsism, right? It's kind of made fun of in philosophy. It's not like a real philosophical position that anybody, right, in a rigorous context would actually advocate. It's almost this idea that Everything is a figment of my imagination, like y'all, this Instagram live, that song, the cosmos, like it's all actually just about me, right? And unfortunately, a lot of people, certainly since 1968, seem to have unironically adopted solipsism as if that is some kind of marginally legitimate philosophical stance or worldview, right? Exactly. Natasha sharing it's like the secret or the law of attraction. If folks are familiar with that horrifically damaging book, right? New spirituality, right, means that poor folks are poor because of their energy or their mindset. This came up on a call recently and I got the fuck out and confronted the host. Good for you, right? Um, and so, yeah, we've got terms, we've got words to be able to name these things, give thanks. So again, in philosophy, that would be called solipsism. And again, it's not even considered a legit philosophical perspective. It's kind of made fun of when we begin to delve into, right? 
right, different worldviews and different modes of perception, it's not actually something that, again, in intellectual settings, people take seriously. But then, kind of like some of the examples y'all have been sharing, right, someone else sharing, I'm part of this community, it's been more open, but yes, right, a lot of folks actually do craft their worldviews based off of that foundation of navel-gazing, right, makes me think of projecting for sure. And the thing is around that, right, this has super, right, detrimental consequences in the world and not just in the eye of the beholder or for the person that might believe in the law of attraction, might have read The Secret or seen the film and found it compelling, right, for other people too. It's something that actually one of the founders, Adam Johnson, of the podcast Citations Needed, right, um, has coined a term called perseverance porn to talk about one consequence of this. And I don't know if any of y'all have seen that before but I certainly see it very often within the mainstream culture. It's kind of this, right, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mythology that totally invisibilizes the big picture, right? Where we're so focused on, right, the one tree that we are or that's in front of us that we don't even know there's a forest, right? Exactly, right? Involve sharing and gross Jared Kushner saying that black folks, quote, don't want to be successful, end quote. If any of y'all listened to that excerpt, right, from within the past couple of days of him saying, you know, we don't have control over whether or not people want to be successful. Like at some point, people just need to ask that question, right? This is a classic, like a dictionary definition of that. Thank you for bringing that in, where it's like, all of a sudden, what sociology doesn't exist, economics doesn't exist, like history is non-existent. There's no such thing as politics, right? Like we can just bypass all of those facets of reality, because, right, what gets put up on a pedestal and overdetermined, right, this individual volition or will or motivation. So again, when Adam Johnson talks about perseverance porn, right, that's especially in the context of corporate media, where you'll see these allegedly heartwarming stories, especially of poor folks, right, that for example, are having to raise money on GoFundMe for life-saving surgeries and how horrific it is that that kind of, right, performance of precarity and of vulnerability gets lauded, right, at the expense of advocating for healthcare for everyone, right, or basic social services or a humane and dignified world for us to be in. These are some of the things that fall through the cracks when people get caught up in this hyper-individualistic, right, mode of perceiving the world. And this is something that shows up for sure, right, in sites of financial literacy more broadly, which is why I in part just raised the GoFundMe example. So also, right, if any of y'all have ever listened to, say, the Dave Ramsey show or any of these, right, most famous and most listened to, say, financial podcasts in a place like the U.S., that kind of hyper-individualistic framing is just totally taken as a given, right? 
right? And it's actually kind of funny that capitalism alleges to be about efficiency and efficacy, but hyper-individualism is ridiculously inefficient, and it's not particularly effective as a means of, right, people being able to achieve our objectives by any stretch of the imagination. What do I mean by that as one example? So say I could take it back. When I was 20 years old and I was in college, I lived for a year in a co-op in an intentional community where one of the rad things that we did was we had dinner nights where everybody would sign up, right? Maybe we'd get together with one or two other people in the community and, right, we would have a dinner night where, say, I took care of making dinner on Monday nights with one or two of y'all and people took turns. And one of the reasons for that, it was nice to be able to come together and be intentional like that and share meals. Uh, yet another purpose of right having those collective dinner nights in our co-op was because we save so much time, energy, and money when we cook and when we clean together, right? And I know this is something that a lot of folks lament in a context that is as alienating as capitalist societies, like in the settler colonial U.S., where so often, right, folks are engaged in epic redundancies just because some people have the relative degree of privilege of being isolated, right? So doing everything on their own instead of being able to actually share, whether it's so-called domestic work, right, or care work, doing the dishes, right, cooking, cleaning, and so on and so forth. And so that would be one example, right, of the astounding inefficiency, frankly, right, of this hyper-individualistic way of being in the world that just totally naturalizes and normalizes alienation, which is one of the core staple impacts of capitalism on our lives. It just presumes that that's beyond reproach. We can't even sit and name the thing and, right, mull over, right, what else could be done, what other options exist for us. Uh, and you know this is super pronounced when it comes to, right, advice in the realm of debt, for example. So say, like, on that Dave Ramsey show, you'll hear people, right, advocating that folks, right, just cut corners, no more lattes, only eat rice and beans, right, and in this super ableist fashion will encourage people to approach getting out of debt, whether it's medical debt, whether it's student loan debt, in a way that is just astoundingly impoverished in terms of their imagination. It's like they don't even know that debt cancellation is a thing, that we could be advocating for a debt jubilee, that we could be advocating for, right, loopholes to be closed in terms of taxation so that some billionaires and corporations could even pay their fair share just into this settler colonial system so that some people could have a foundation to be able to live on and through, right? But instead, no, 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 we can't talk about any of that. There is no society. There's only the individual. That's, again, one of the bedrocks of the libertarian mythology, right? Taking it back to say, right, some of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and some arch conservatives, right, favored talking points. But we're not allowed to acknowledge any of that, right? Instead, we just need to focus on in isolation. Like, you just need to get out of debt. 
Don't go looking for a handout, right? All of that kind of framing is total obfuscation, right? It obscures more than it illuminates. Um, and again, this is especially pernicious when it comes to money, which is always already politicized and which we need to be able to talk about in explicitly politicized terms. Because if not, in the absence of that, people might actually fall into having right these mythological capitalist talking points impact our being, right, and our perception and our understanding of ourselves and one another in the world, like not understanding corporations receive the majority of welfare in the U.S., not individuals. But if you just listen to corporate media, right, or storytelling, say, in Hollywood movies, people might actually think like, oh, that time when I was in my master's program and I was on food stamps briefly because I was given poverty wages to teach at a university, San Diego State University's Women's Studies Department, that means there was something wrong with me as opposed to grad students receiving poverty wages for teaching university courses, right? It's a ridiculous mode of perception, but that's frankly what's actually one of the most common, right, or popular modes of perception under capitalism. Right, yeah, someone sharing, this is bringing up a lot, right, um, in a recovery community with white women, it was hard, I can only imagine, right, and this is also something that, to be sure, when it comes to recovery, when it comes to conversations related to healing, right, is such a force to be reckoned with when people don't even have within their cultural vocabulary the space to be able to perceive holistically, that's a buzzword that's so often, right, underutilized in this realm, to put it kindly, right? They were charging me and I was broke when I finally left. They asked me to ask my parents for money. It was supposedly a women's empowerment program. Wow. So much to get into related to that around how in entrepreneurial spaces, right, also people weaponize this language of individual grit right, grind culture, hustle culture, right, so-called empowerment in a way that so often just this rebranding of the most horrifically capitalist and cis-heteropatriarchal and ableist, right, and Eurocentric forms of meaning-making available to us. Uh, and so, you know, another area that's really important for us to bring in here is how for sure, right, taking it back to 1968 when the Beatles, right, promoted that counter-revolutionary song, Revolution, what else was happening at the time? We could talk about, say, how across the feminist movement, even in the settler colonial U.S., Folks were having consciousness-raising circles, getting together in living rooms or around kitchen tables. And what were they doing? Formidably resisting this hyper-individualism. And what did that look like, right? So some of y'all I know have participated in consciousness-raising circles in the context of Liberation Spring classes. For folks that might not have ever had that kind of experience, one of the things that we do is taking it back to that educational model, right, that 
came out of right feminist activist spaces is we tell our personal stories as a way and an entry point, a conversation starter to be able to extrapolate out to the bigger picture, not to just stay stuck in a vacuum, but to be able to acknowledge, right, even if we're to use the language of, say, social sciences, right, with all of those data points, so to speak, of all of our individual lived experiences, we're able to actually engage in pattern recognition with more truth value, with more explanatory power, with an increased likelihood of accuracy, right, as one of the only hopes of ever being able to arrive at any kind of causal storytelling about what the cause of something is, right, because we have actually done that due diligence, so to speak, to see well, what is my experience of, let's take any issue, for example, housework, and then what's yours? And then how about my neighbors? And how about your neighbors, right? And our family members. And we can go on through the circle and then derive, right, analyses and a heightened awareness because we came together, right? So during that time in particular, and especially when it came to sex, when it came to housework, when it came to childcare, right? So many folks had actually been in a space of having been depoliticized, right? Where they weren't right necessarily encouraged to come together to be able to talk about things, to then be able to glean broader insights based off of that collective shared experience of reflection. And you know what is incredibly, right, potent in that possibility is then, right, we don't just get caught up in these capitalist, right, propagandistic notions that somebody said you're not supposed to talk about religion or politics, right, or money at the dinner table. So I'm not even going to critically think about that. I'm just going to conform, right, to that dictate for the rest of my life. And then all of a sudden, we're not allowed to talk about money. And who has the privilege to not talk about money? Maybe if you have a dinner table, and maybe if there's food on your dinner table. But for those of us that might be in positions of precarity, for poor folks, for working class folks, we've got to pause and to ask, What's the ideological function of that kind of peer pressure to stay in our little individual boxes? So you see how here it's not so much about just kind of asking in a vacuum, right, or just playing in the realm of abstraction, right? Well, what does it mean for you to be an individual, right? Or I'm actually into, right, focusing on myself for the sake of survival or for the sake of healing, right? There are all sorts of interesting conversations we can get into there for sure, and, right, I really want to invite us to be able to zoom out and to see the way that that navel gazing that was especially perpetuated, right, with the co-optation of so many of our liberationist movements from the late 60s and early 70s, right, is still really fucking with our communities today, right? People that just take as a given, right, some of this ideology that's promulgated in self-help books, in memes, without necessarily, right, pausing to zoom out and to critically think about and to analyze 
hang on a minute, what's between the lines here, right? Is there some kind of subtext that's not getting named? What are the questions that are not being asked precisely, right, involve sharing the people who say it's uncouth to discuss are the ones who have it precisely, right? And so on that front, actually, um, there is a little bit of a quote, right, by Amitava Kumar from his book that just came out this year, right, Every Day I Write the Book, Notes on Style, where he's talking about, right, that self-help canon and how so often, unfortunately, what it looks like today is super anti-intellectual. He says, quote, the genre of self-help is flooded by practitioners who traffic in offering salvation, those who smother any intelligence seeking under the blanket of cheerful optimism. So that's kind of like that bypassing that Nikki, you named earlier from the Beatles lyric where they're just like, everything's gonna be all right. Everything's gonna be all right. Everything's gonna be all right. You know, if you're a child who's malnourished in Yemen right now, everything's not all right. Yeah, the times that I was raped, that actually wasn't all right. My mother dying prematurely, that actually wasn't all right. Like, if we have language in our cultural vocabulary for all right and not all right, there are things in the world that are materially not all right right now. And so, right, at a certain point, Folks really need to be able to name that kind of spiritual immaturity, right? That kind of intellectual immaturity to keep it real, right? That kind of, right, counter-revolutionary dogma where folks are like, it's all good, right? Just wanting to have rose-tinted glasses on or be Pollyanna-ish in the face of atrocities. There's nothing positive about that, right? So it really merits acknowledging at what point does positivity become negative if we even want to play with that ridiculous dualism the way that it plays out within right so many texts of that self-help genre. And so what's another one of the material impacts of, right, hyper-individualism in terms of how it impacts our perception? So this myth of hyper-individualism would delude us into thinking that we can earn our way out of injustice, or maybe if we're just fuckable enough, then our dreams will come true. But the thing is, if our dreams include just, for example, having access to clean drinking water, right? Or maybe not living in a prison nation or planet, or maybe not wanting to be on a planet that's on fire, right? No individual success is going to get you any of that. So I'll say it again because, right, I know that hearing me say that it might seem super obvious, and yet let's just pause to recognize what a formidable intervention this is into so much hyper-individualistic, right, advice columns, self-help discourse. Again, if our dreams and our lives, right, like some goal that you have or some objective moving forward in life includes you and other folks being able to have clean drinking water, right, or being on a planet that's not subsumed by climate catastrophe, right, or not being in a horrifically carceral society, we don't get any of those things, even things just as basic as that, clean drinking water, planet that's not on fire, not being in a prison nation or world, 
you don't get that through individual attainment or success, right? There's only one path forward to be able to fulfill any of those right objectives, which like the clean drinking water, it's kind of non-negotiable for humans to be able to survive, right? We get that through collective action, right? And what does hyper-individualism so often discourage us from even thinking about or considering? collective action, right? So this is a little bit of what is at stake here. This is a little bit of why hyper-individualism is so horrifically counter-revolutionary. It's got us measuring the wrong metrics. And then people might be confused about why they're not getting desirable results, right? And so another right couple of horrific examples of this might kind of drive this insight home. So what's another area where we see right this kind of right hyper individualistic mode of perception really right confusing folks in horrifically dangerous and unjust ways through this rhetoric of looking for angels, right? So say, for example, right, when some folks are murdered by cops, you'll see this horrific victim-blaming mentality emerge that will say, like, oh, well, had that person that was murdered by a cop ever done anything problematic in their entire life? As if somehow that means that it's okay or justified that they were murdered by a cop. And so let's just kind of unpack for a minute the subtext, what's actually going on there, right? One of the things that we can notice there is, right, for a lot of folks, right, it's almost like psychically, if people don't want to deal with the reality that that could happen to them too, or that that means they're in, an atrocious society that needs dismantling. Instead, they'll kind of revert to, well, maybe that person did something wrong. So then what happened to them was justified. So then I don't have to ask these bigger questions about if I could get fucked with also, or if this means that something needs changing within the broader society, right? So that would be one example that unfortunately we see on a near daily basis when it comes to these extrajudicial killings to put it kindly, right, or cops murdering people, right? And a second example of this, right, comes up when it comes to talking about rape also, right? This idea that, right, if you're just enough of an angel, so to speak, then you won't get raped. But the thing is, until rape culture ends, there's no guarantee that you're not getting raped, don't ask me how I know. And so the thing about that is also, you see how that hyper-individualistic mode of perception distracts us away from what could have actually supported us fulfilling an objective like, if I don't want me or anyone else to get murdered by cops, right, or if I don't want myself or anybody else to ever get raped again, then we actually need to address prison abolition. Then we actually need to address rape culture, right? But if we're in this little hyper-individualistic illusion, then there's no space to talk about those systemic injustices. So do you see through those couple of examples also how consequential this myth of hyper-individualism is? And I'd actually like to share with y'all a little bit of a thought experiment, right, to also sort of drive home how poisonous 
this sort of new cage mythology of navel gazing is. Um, and this is one that is both astounding to me that people are not talking about more, and it's also a little unsurprising, frankly. So you know how it's a bit of a truism or a cliche for people, right, in the U.S. these days, right, and especially in some sort of middle class, right, and especially in Eurocentric spaces, to talk about wanting to feel self-worth, right, and especially, right, <clears throat> talking about wanting to feel an intrinsic sense of self-worth. All right, so just playing with a little bit of a thought experiment here. What if self-worth, so here the self and self-worth we know from everything we've been talking about is likely to be interpreted in some hyper-individualistic ways by most people based off of the capitalist propaganda we've been waiting in for most, if not all, of our lives. What if self-worth was actually relational? Like, how about if you treat people and all life forms and the earth well, then it might be easier to feel good about yourself, and that might actually be more warranted. And on that front, isn't it actually pretty navel-gazing to want to just unconditionally love yourself in a vacuum in that way that people talk about within the mainstream culture? Like, even, for example, if somebody is a rapist, right, or if somebody is a murderous cop, I'll bet, for example, at least superficially, Harvey Weinstein might love himself unconditionally. I bring this up because over the decades, I've known a shit ton of privileged people whose sense of their own intrinsic goodness is actually pathological as fuck. So I'm thinking here to give one instance um, of a rapist who couldn't possibly fathom that he was non-consensual. Like it was ontologically inconceivable. Like there's no possibility that this person could have done something problematic. Or like, to give another example, some white American women's murderous belief in their niceness, right? And they have this murderous belief in their own niceness or goodness or self-worth while stealing, while endangering, while Amy Coopering, etc. So indeed, what if this new cage truism of finding self-worth in a vacuum is actually marginally solipsistic, right? And in some instances, almost verging on what some people in psychology talk about as narcissistic, let alone colonial and white supremacist. Like somebody could go be a decent human being in the world. And then if they were so wedded to the idea of a nice self-conception, it's actually warranted that some kind of a priori entitlement to a gold star for ethics, regardless of your material impact on the world, is an astonishingly weird cultural assumption of some people. Now, this was just one simple little thought experiment, but do you see how massive its reverberations are? I know thousands of bougie people and quite often white folks who kick down millions of dollars in weekend workshops and other commodities to feel good about themselves, yet always via some gimmick or another, and never from stopping omnicide or 
actively growing collective liberation. So for me, it's obvious why the regimes are futile. They're still being oppressive in the world, bypassing into infinity the responsibilities that are actually in their lane. So I bring this up, right, although there's another, right, piece that we could bring in here that might also drive home this, right, curiosity. What's another super damaging way that hyper-individualism messes with our capacity to perceive clearly? It often mistakes, what? Critique for judgment. Do you know what the difference is between judgment and critique? Have you ever noticed how conversations can get quickly shut down when someone says they're feeling judged, especially in the U.S.? Here's what happens. So rigorous dialogue can end up being stifled. So perhaps someone might have been bypassing accountability when maybe, right, something they shared was getting called out, so to speak, right, was getting complicated, was getting problematized. And the result is quite often that fragility gets coddled. The person sharing a critique may have been accused of being less evolved, so to speak, because who wants to be judgmental? It's often considered negative, especially by Christians and by other people that have super consequential religious interpretations of some idea of judgment. Was that a part of your family or maybe a part of your religious or spiritual upbringing? If so, this might be relevant for you. Or if you know anyone for whom judgment was kind of the thing, right, in terms of their religion or spirituality or upbringing, this definitely might be relevant for them. And I wonder if this might have shown up in dynamics that you might have experienced. And on that front, wow, people are pretty judgmental towards judgments, aren't they? That's one to sit with, isn't it? As in, wouldn't it be hypocritical to judge judgment if somebody is so anti-judgment? And this is something that, right, again, taking it back to the examples that we're talking about, shows up in the context of rape culture. It shows up in conversations related to prison abolition and abolishing policing. Exactly, Eva, right? It's an epic example of gaslighting, right? Uh, and so there's something that really merits acknowledging here, which is if any attempt at sharing critique or analysis is interpreted through this hyper-individualistic lens, it's like, again, there's no room to move beyond personal judgment. And this happens so often. And sometimes it might not even be judgment. It might be, to take it a little bit further, if folks have just taken for granted this kind of libertarian right echo chamber where they're like, there's no society, there's only the individual, I've even had this happen, right, in talking with, right, upper middle class white new cagers, where maybe I will share a critique of something that they were saying or doing, and they'll literally say, thinking that there's something deep in their response, wow, I'm hearing a lot of intergenerational trauma, and it's like they think through this sort of anti-intellectual, right, sort of faux or pop psychoanalysis that it's like they're, they've actually excavated something deep in the dialogue without recognizing, oh no, that was actually a power dynamic that I was naming as a gift to you, but it seems like you were oblivious to it because you're so caught up in this hyper-individualistic analysis 
analysis where there's only the individual so of course there's nothing else to talk about. Like maybe you're personally traumatized and so I'm gonna ignore power dynamics and if somebody says something that I just wanna totally bypass, I'll just say, oh, that's just their trauma talking, right? And so this is something that happens quite often and if it's not a dynamic that you're super, right, versed in being able to name, I really invite curiosity around this. Have you seen something like this before, right? So again, right, classic victim blaming also, like somebody names a rape culture and people are like, I don't want to think about rape culture. Maybe that's overwhelming for me. Or maybe if I don't have some training in activism or in politics and I don't know what to do with that, right, then I'm just going to tell a different kind of story that feels more available to me, right? So it's a form of copying out of the world, right, and navel gazing. But how about that bigger picture, Instead of victim blaming and telling people that there's something wrong with them and what's in their heads, right, what else could we consider? For one, that challenges we face in the world aren't figments of our imagination. They're not products of our own making. When fluff like this is so popular within the mainstream culture, lots of people don't pause to see if it even makes sense. They'll just repeat, right, what they hear if other people are sharing, right, those kinds of libertarian talking points. Here's where it's important to have healthy skepticism to see if something is an accurate description of what's actually going on. What other options exist on the table that we could be talking about? For example, have we already addressed oppression, lateral violence, and the colonization of our minds? Because until they've been adequately addressed, you can't isolate those variables out of the equation. So what's getting peripheralized? What's getting individualized that might actually be collective? So many, for example, let me know if this is familiar, therapists and psychologists don't have the tools in their toolkit, say, for ending capitalism, patriarchy, or colonialism, but what they do have is tools for changing you. This might not lead, right, or they might not lead their advertising with that kind of honesty, saying, Full disclosure, this is what I was taught and have available to use on you. Do you think that's a good fit? To ensure that your consent is informed, provided you're even consenting. So can you imagine how much more impactful that would be if when people were seeking support, they were re to receive that truth in advertising and then could keep seeking out more options? How many of us have done initial consultations with therapists or psychologists who were honest like that, who acknowledged that the tools they had to offer were incommensurate with our needs? Saying, for example, oh, it sounds like what you need is actually an end to capitalism. Go to this office. They might be able to help you. And that other office, by the way, would be our social movements. So actually wouldn't be professionalized and not necessarily in an office either. In the absence of that honesty, though, here's what this dialogue might look more like. Someone with their credentials and authority just acting like they know what's up. In that hierarchical context, prescribing something to you, including a story about your individual self and your life, without having the humility to recognize that if they don't even understand the broader society's cultural dynamics, they are not actually in a place to be saying anything about any of this. They need to actually pause 
and learn about the worlds that we're in before they try to start prescribing solutions for people. It's rare for psychologists, therapists, or coaches to have that kind of humility, unfortunately. To use a speciesist phrase, it's like they're a one-trick pony. Fuck ponies having tricks, fuck speciesism, but I'm just using the cultural vocabulary that's legible to people. A one-trick pony only knows one trick. So they're only going to do one trick. And it doesn't matter whether or not that one trick they know is actually suitable in any given setting. Similarly, if a therapist only has their one pet modality, that's what they're going to serve up regardless of whether or not it's a good fit. In terms of professional ethics, they should say, these are my specializations, and if what you're working on isn't a part of my expertise, we're not a good fit. For example, someone might not go to, say, a disordered eating specialist if they're seeking support around grieving unless that intersection is actually relevant for them. You see, our perception of moving towards liberation can actually be holistic, like honeycomb vision, right? And it could be, and indeed is within some world's views, unfathomable to separate some notion of political liberation from the so-called spiritual, from the so-called emotional, from the so-called relational, from the so-called ecological, right? A more kaleidoscopic gaze allows us to see, right? Not even just the interconnectedness that presumes distinction, the mutual constitution of these realms. Besides, they are always already informing one another, right, and flowing into one another. If we're paying attention, we might already be aware of that, which is why it can be so painfully obvious when someone is ostensibly into liberation in one realm and oblivious in others, right? Someone sharing, so tired of therapists telling black clients to learn to relate to a white therapist, especially with no critical race lens, precisely. Yeah, I would in the vast majority of settings never encourage BIPOC to work with a white therapist. Um, full disclosure, one of my multiple therapists is white. I go to her for a very, specific purpose uh, and all of the other right support that I have in my life related to healing or BIPOC. Um, and so as a general sort of guideline to be astoundingly attuned to the kind of violence, right, that can get right shared and promulgated under the ostensible kind of right project of healing or of support when people do engage in those kinds of right multiracial interactions, right? So someone's saying, right, sharing this as a former therapist. Absolutely, right? And that cuts across so many different right dimensions of lived experience, depending upon the extent to which right people who are holding space have or have not subsumed substantially exercised up out of them some of these kinds of right colonial and capitalist and cis-heteropatriarchal and xenophobic modes of perception like hyper-individualism. Uh, so, so much more, right, for us to get into 
continuing on, especially talking about, right, so-called conspiracy theories on Saturday, but we're just about running out of time for today's recording. So I would just want to share, right, in instances where maybe y'all might be seeing, right, this kind of hyper-individualistic language at play materially on the ground to invite your healthy skepticism. If something feels off, to please trust that, right, or in the words of the genius James Baldwin, right, saying, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. If someone says that they're into liberation, but what they're doing in the world is hyper-individualistic, to please have respect for that noticing. Uh, so appreciate y'all listening. Feel free to share. Kick down funds if you can and don't steal my work. Looking forward to seeing you Saturday. Bye. Freedom is That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyay, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people. It's the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours. Yeah. Freedom is ours.